You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The Institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. The idea of a machine that thinks dates back to ancient Greek times, but since the advent of electronic computing and the overwhelming amount of data generated by the human race in the last 50 years, the realisation of intelligent machines that can think like humans has been almost tangible. In 1950, Alan Turing published his seminal work, Computing Machinery and Intelligence, In the paper, Turing proposed to answer the question, can machines think, and introduced the Turing test to determine if a computer could demonstrate the same intelligence as a human. In 1956, John McCarthy coined the term artificial intelligence at the first ever AI conference at Dartmouth College, saying artificial intelligence is the science and engineering of making intelligent machines, especially intelligent computer programs, It is related to the similar task of using computers to understand human intelligence, but AI does not have to confine itself to methods that are biologically observable. Today, there is a great deal of hype around AI systems and intelligent machine development, which is of course to be expected from any new emerging technology. But what exactly is AI and what does it mean for the world of mechanical engineering? In this Eye to Eye podcast special, I speak with Neil Lawrence and Alan King about what AI and machine learning is all about, what its uses will be, and how engineers will benefit from using these systems in their work environments. Professor Neil Lawrence is the inaugural DeepMind Professor of Machine Learning at the University of Cambridge. Senior AI Fellow at the Alan Turing Institute and Visiting Professor of Machine Learning at the University of Sheffield. He received his Bachelor's Degree in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Southampton in 1994 and spent his early career as a field engineer on oil rigs in the North Sea. Neil has been working on machine learning models for over 20 years and recently returned to academia after three years as Director of Machine Learning at Amazon, where he worked on deploying machine learning solutions for Prime Air, Alexa and the Amazon supply chain. Neil, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me. I wanted to start by asking what I think is a simple question, but probably has a a very long and quite complex answer to it. But what exactly is artificial intelligence? Yeah, it's something I I end up having to think a lot about because I I didn't start my career wanting to work in AI, but it's just the technology I happen to be working on turned out to be the main technology that's delivering AI. And it's, I think it's a complicated term that means different things to different people. And I think the word intelligence is very emotive. So I think there's lots of different answers, but one of my favorite is the notion that um, 
Well, which is something that I think just in terms of observing, when I hear people talk about it, they seem to think it's the ne- the first generation of automation that is going to adapt to us rather than forcing us to adapt to it. And as an engineer originally, I'm sort of very aware about the extent to which our solutions to automation in society, people have been forced to adapt to. And when people seem to talk about AI, they seem to feel as if it's different. It's going to know who we are and react to us. Um, I'm not sure there's that much evidence that we've created anything like that. But when I chat to people on the train, I get the sense that that's what they think. I mean, in practice, I think the sort of tools we're calling AI are quite different, that they're automation of things that we formerly used to think of as the preserve of humans. Um, But then I think there's this really interesting effect that is quite well known that as, as we automate and reconstruct them, we no longer think of them as AI. We think, oh, computers can do that. That's not interesting. A lot of the ideas we have on around AI actually come from sort of people working on systems of radar or crypto analysis in the Second World War. And a lot of our thinking of it comes out of this field known as cybernetics, which was a book written by Norbert Wiener. And I think many of the ideas we're deploying today, you can read about, they're in that era. Uh, the term AI itself, it comes from the 1950s. And I in some sense, there's an unfortunate history to it because it was an attempt to airbrush, arguably an attempt to airbrush Wiener out of the history of, of what Wiener talked about as, uh, well, I've got the book on the shelf, so I just want to... Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. And he used the term cybernetics explicitly as a nod to Watts Governor uh, because cybernetics is his rendering. He, he spoke ancient Greek, his father taught it to him, his rendering of the word Kubernetes we would use. It's familiar to people in computer science now, the cloud, uh, a way of dealing with cloud compute, um, which, which, is the, which was rendered in Latin as governor and means helmsman. So it means effectively autopilot, I think, is, is what he's driving at. And the reason he drives at that is because of the, um, his acknowledgement of, of the centrifugal governor, which of course is by what? You know, the, the governor itself is, is something to Wiener that, um, and, and a paper by Maxwell on the governor and the tendency for steam engines to surge. So, you know, this is a book from, I think, 1860s. The governor or flyball governor, as it often distinctively called, was another of Watt's minor, but very essential inventions. <laughs> now, it actually wasn't an invention of his. It, it, he's something he saw while constructing the Albion Mill in London. Um, The Albion Mill was an early flour mill, and it was actually used for um, windmills originally and for controlling the um, gap between the grindstone as as the windmill sped up. But what Watt did with it was he did something unusual. He connected it to the regulator of the engine. And and by connecting it to the regulator of the engine, he caused a feedback loop to occur. And Wiener himself ended up working on, there's an amazing invention called the magnetron, which is the sort of uh, an ability to sort of get uh, high frequency radio waves, microwaves in effect, and and get very directional radar that was a sort of very top secret invention used by the Allies in the Second World War for gun laying, for shooting down aircraft. And and Wiener worked on these things and using his, his theory, the Wiener processes, and then discovered discovered independently the sort of tendency of these things to oscillate and ended up reading a lot on this and, and understanding feedback and sort of founding our modern theory of control. Um, so in a very real sense, the, the earliest efforts in AI are intimately connected with engineering because they're about automated decision-making. The governor itself allows 
you to sort of remove an operator from the sort of preventing the engine overspeeding. The, the engine is, is now tuned to not overspeed. So that's an early automation. But I think sort of a long way around what I want to build on is what you talked about as information, because, of course, the difference in those days, in the 1940s, is the relative paucity of data. So what you tend to see is certainly initially analog control systems, uh, which would be often thought of as analog computers, and people designing them to make what we could arguably say are intelligent decisions and doing a lot of strong mathematical theory to understand the stability of those systems, which is familiar to sort of all engineers today. And one of the things I, I'm fascinated about is, is how integrated that, that, that control is often in the system itself. So the mechanical linkages or whatever, it doesn't need to be an electrical system. Now, simultaneously in the background, Vina uh, was well aware of, and other people like Alan Turing are involved, but people are sort of developing the digital computer. And when you think about the digital computer's role in the war, the Colossus was built at Bletchley Park in, in, in order to assist in statistical and, I mean, it was a statistical attack, but required some brute force methodology on the Lawrence site for the, the German high commands codes. Uh, and that's a very different thing. So there's a limited input, which is the sort of German encoded message, an enormous amount of compute. And, and what you sort of see is that, that sort of AI sort of, I don't know, there's this early desire to think about, oh, well, how do we get chess playing computers? How do we do this? Turing's very interested in that. Um, but, but at one point, these two were together. And I think later, you know, control itself became an accepted field with engineering, something I was taught as an undergraduate engineer, even in mechanical engineering. And, and yet these other aspects of AI that were harder to do, the sort of things that are very familiar to us as humans, we've only really gained the capabilities now because of precisely what you said, information. So ironically, many of the techniques and ideas we're using, they're certainly evolved, but you can see their origin going all the way back to that time in the 1940s of Wiener and the sort of things that Turing thought about and the things that other people thought about at the same time, a, a gentleman called... Um, Frank Rosenblatt, who, who died, unfortunately, quite early. But, but nowadays, we finally have the compute and the data capability to make those techniques work. And, and that involves things like recognizing objects in images, or you know, very recently, a lot of work on generation of natural language, you know, really impressive generation of natural language. I think that is going beyond what any of us would have dared to predict. But it's also going into a data regime that we've never been able to go before. These methods are not learning in the same way humans learn. They're seeing every piece of every word that all humans have written across time. And the thing that we didn't know was, well, whether through that you could, you could learn to sort of generate the type of text or the type of images humans generate. And the answer turns out to be, oh, yes, you can. But we've never been in that region before, you know, on on this planet. So, so that, that's been a bit of a journey of discovery with, with some amazing results. Uh, but I don't think many of us would have predicted. I mean, we knew there were going to be big changes. I mean, a few years ago, a couple of two or three years ago, you could have started to predict, but eight or nine years ago, uh, the extent to which that would work, I think, was not within... Um, most people's horizons. I'm sitting here listening, absolutely fascinated to what you're saying, linking what you're doing today in terms of AI and data and all of this, what I see as very computer-based mathematical, actually to link it back to the very basics of mechanical engineering 
just makes it feel much more personal now for me. Actually, it's it's less ethereal uh, as to what I've how I've always imagined artificial intelligence to be. It, it feels kind of more uh, hands on and and linking it back. And of course, I mean, what would Turing think today of the sort of work that you're doing? Well, I mean, he would be dumbfounded, wouldn't they, by by some of the things that you're working on today? So it's amazing. I have a, uh, it's a funny that you should say that, and this is not prepared, but in my Apple notes, I'm just going to get it. I have a letter in front of me. Dear Dr. Ashby, Sir Charles Darwin has shown me letter, your letter. Sir Charles Darwin is the head of the National Physical Laboratory in, in the 1940s, the grandson of, of the sort of more famous Charles, but uh, an amazing mathematician in his own right. And I'm most interested to find that there is someone working along these lines. In working on the ACE, the ACE is the computer Turing's working on shortly after the Second World War, I am more interested in the possibility of producing models of the notion of the brain than in the practical applications to computing. I am most anxious to read your paper. Now, who he's talking about is a gentleman called Ross Ashby. This is 1946. This is shortly after the Second World War. And what Turing goes on to say in, in a sort of like an astonishing manner is that uh, he, he would prefer it. Uh, so he sort of says, the ACE is in fact analogous to the universal machine described in my paper on computable numbers. So this is the famous Turing machine. This theoretical possibility is attainable in practice in all reasonable cases, at worst at the expense of operating slightly slower than the machine specifically designed for the purpose in question. So what he's saying is like, I can build a universal computer. And I haven't seen Ashby's letter, but I know what Ashby wrote about. He's got a, an amazing book called Design for a Brain that actually inspired the sort of deep neural networks that uh, Rosenblatt credited explicitly uh, and talks about random connections between layers. This is shortly after um, McCulloch and Pitt's paper on, on neurons and how they might work. Um, and I can infer what Turing is answering. He's saying, don't implement your neural networks in hardware, implement them on my computer, <laughs> which I haven't yet built. <laughs> and which I, and which because I, I mean one of the amazing things about it is he never does build it in fact he he moves to manchester because i think as far as i can tell he spends a lot of time dreaming about how this machine should be and how it could implement these things and less time on the practical things that they really yeah. want him to do which are much more associated with things like the things people cared about is calculating artillery trajectories and and turing is, is is constantly sort of trying to go beyond that and and i sort of it's so amazing he knows all this is possible because of his work in the second world war but i'm sort of really intrigued by the fact that when he's not under the time pressure of people are dying because you're not deploying this yeah that then then he starts to dream big and he's describing exactly what my field does today in 1946 um and of course he can't realize it and, and he doesn't realize it and it probably wouldn't have been practical but i, I was thinking that's triggering in my own mind a sort of little exercise in, in what could he have implemented it if he had yeah. built that machine um so so he to some extent he would have gone well of course and why didn't you do it earlier <laughs> but what he wouldn't have known or he may have known or but he, he wouldn't have been able to test because it's a sort of empirical understanding is that these models, um, in, in the way that we are building and deploying them, and maybe he would have come up with a better way, only really work with enormous quantities of data in, in the way that, that we were describing them in the sort of 1950s uh, with 
Rose, well, early, mm. late 50s, early 60s, I think, with Rosenblatt, and then later with uh, the next wave of these models in the 19, sort of late 1980s, and then, and then with the third wave. Um, these, the models, in the way we've described them, are only really working with enormous data sets. And of course, that wouldn't have, the data wouldn't have been accessible in, in their time. And even if it had been accessible, they didn't have significant enough compute power to sort of do uh, the, the type of, to generate the type of results we're getting in speech processing and computer vision and language generation and image generation that we have today. It, it is mind-blowing, really, to, to think about that. And, and I, I'm very interested in, in Turing and Bletchley and, and other aspects of that. So we, we could have a full conversation on that, but I'll not go into it. <laughs> As I understand it, though, that there are different types of AI systems. So, so what are they, and how do they differ from one another? Yeah, I suppose the answer sort of depends a bit on who's asking the question, and it's always hard in a podcast to know, uh, you know, who's who's listening. Um, I suppose one framing of it is one could think of classical AI, and I think that that is really stems from this era. There's a sort of a lot of it is dependent on the capabilities of our tools, and there's this interesting era between sort of Turing and between the sort of first steps in the movement of machine learning, where computational capabilities have got to a certain level. Data availability hasn't quite got there because we don't have the internet, and people see the promise or they want to fulfill the promise of machines, and they're starting to do things like uh, computers that can play chess, and a lot of what was AI in those days is things like planning, path planning, or uh, sort of tree search, game tree search is, is what you do in a sort of chess game where you're sort of searching across the moves exhaustively. The sort of things that they were actually doing in, in Bletchley and, and then efficient algorithms for doing that, but also discovering that, you know, in the real world, th these, these game trees, the reason why Go is hard in chess is because the number of possible moves at any point is larger so the game tree expands rapidly yeah. exponentially with that sort of high coefficient and what's going on um for them is they're starting to realize well that the early ai people promise there's a, there's a wave of hype that, that you're going to be able to start solving all these interesting problems and you get these waves of expert systems which try and encode human knowledge i mean i have other books in front of me on expert systems in the law they were going to make legal decisions for us and and broadly speaking, I mean, there are successes, but, but it's it's like a lot of these waves of technology. Um, we tend to focus more on the failures. And I think that, and it's, it's always a little bit unfair looking in the past because people, you look at the people who promised the most and then you work out what was delivered and it's always less than what was promised. But, but at one level, we can certainly say that some extraordinary things were promised and relative to that, we didn't see the same level of delivery. And it's partially because I think a lot of it's trying to work from first principles from how should the world be. But that sort of reductionist view is very, very complicated. If you want to sort of the complexity of the world around us, the amount of computation going on around us, if you wanted to simulate, extremely difficult. And machine learners, so which at that time were known as the connectionists. So when I entered the field, they were very looked down upon by the AI community as right. these people playing with these sort of neural networks and, and what on earth are you and what are those things going to do? <laughs> but I came to it 
as a, as a mechanical engineer who at the time was working on oil rigs, I worked for Schlumberger as a field engineer after I graduated, but I knew I didn't want to do that forever. And I knew I wanted to do a PhD. And I sat on rigs in the sort of 95, 94, 95, reading articles in the New Scientist about these sort of neural network things. And, and I remember very clearly sort of feeling the tools we were using, which were sensing formations using a, a variety of sensors, resistivity, uh, density, and talking to the geologist and trying to learn how to categorize the different types of rock, the limestone, the sandstone, whether there was oil or... And then they would tell me these sort of little rules by which you do it. And you think, well, okay, so, so, so therefore this is sandstone. So, oh, no, no, that's not sandstone because in this case... And of course, they were bringing all this contextual understanding. It was difficult yeah. to make rules, simple rules that describe what formation is what. And then I was simultaneously reading in The New Scientist about these neural network things. This is before the internet. And I thought, oh, uh, well, that sounds interesting because that sounds like that's addressing a problem that, that we can't really solve or I felt we couldn't solve when I tried to think about how I might program something to solve it. And that's how I sort of got into machine learning. And then that turned out to be a good decision because techniques did work. So there's a lot of, uh, lot of machine learning techniques deployed very, very widely in things like doing your deciding which ad at the top of the list in when you use a search engine or deciding which social media posts. I mean, in some sense, these algorithms themselves have their own problems and their own issues. Um, a lot of people wouldn't think of them. So, so moving on to a second type of deployed machine learning, a lot of certainly the AI people would have been quite sniffy about that saying, well, that's not AI. Uh, but it was certainly what machine learning was doing. But simultaneously, machine learning was trying to do things that would get closer to AI, like recognition of entities in objects. And there's this famous thing that the McCarthy in 1956, when he was at Dartmouth, he had this sort of summer program that brought a lot of the experts in the area together in Dartmouth and use this term artificial intelligence for the first time. And some of the projects they talk about is, oh, well, we'll just start recognizing objects and images. But of course, they didn't do that because it's extremely hard. And they, we didn't do that properly for another 55 years. And that really came when we just had access to a lot more data and we could build more complex models. So the sort of models yeah. that are, are doing your newsfeed ranking in Facebook or ads ranking are relatively simple and fast to run. And then the sort of models that we use for doing image recognition, object detection and images, object recognition, people recognition or speech recognition or these language models become larger and more complicated. And I think the thing that we didn't know or didn't have the empirical testing capability to understand is that these very large models um, would perform well in these extremely large data domains because we, we just didn't have the computer to test it. It's an empirical result. You know, yeah. even now we're still working on the theories catching up. It's a bit like the steam engine in that regard. <laughs> People built steam engines before they had sort of Carnot cycles and uh, understood the efficiency of steam engines. And th there's a similar process here. Yeah, I, I suppose you've got to at least start somewhere. There's a chicken and egg kind of situation, isn't there? You've, you've got to start somewhere and create the the model to test it out, to see how far it will go before you can add more to it, I, I'm guessing, in simple terms. Yeah, and I think that there is this sort of quite widespread problem that I think of as model blindness, but I think Kahneman <laughs> talks about it as theory-induced blindness, that you have a mathematical model, like, like this ridiculous thing people say, oh, bumblebees, according to aerodynamics, bumblebees can't fly. Yeah. Right, okay. So, you know, did aerodynamics not check in with the real world? And of course, what's going on <laughs> is like, according to the simplification we use for modeling aerodynamics when looking at no uh, jumbo jets, the, the bumblebee can't fly. So if you scale the bumblebee up to the size of a jumbo jet, but 
according to the aerodynamics that the bumblebee senses in terms of its size and the viscosity of the air, it can fly, and that's why it does fly. And that sort of statement is a wonderful example of well, I call it, as I say, the model blinders, I think of it as, that you have some mathematical way of thinking this is how the world works, and then you impose that on the world. And the, that's always true of a lot of theory. Theory is typically limited in what it can tell you about. And it's like that sort of problem of shining the torch on a dark night. So you're looking at that place there. Now, it happened, people have the courage to go beyond theory, and they shine the torch somewhere else. And they're like, oh, hang on a minute. And then, of course, it it's not to say that this theory has no use, but then theory has to come back at that and sort of like understand what's going on there and what you've discovered is, well, okay, there's, there's things going on, which in retrospect, we can perhaps see what's happening, but we didn't realize uh, would happen in that domain. And then you need to develop a theory of that basically to a guide where you go next to refine that to improve that. And I, that's one of the things that's very exciting intellectually at the moment. And I should say, I'm not involved so much at the cutting edge of it, but I have a lot of friends who are and students who tell me about it. It's just very hard to stay on top of because so many people are involved in it yeah. and reading all the papers is very difficult. But I do think that there's some incredible intellectual activity going on it, that, that, you know, in the future we'll look back on and say, well, X did this, Y did that, and Z did that, and everyone will say, and that's how it was. But the truth of it is, like, at the time, you can't see that at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That leads me on to quite a nice question, actually, really, to kind of bring us from from where AI kind of started to now and, and I suppose, the future. But you were director of machine learning for Amazon for three years, the I mean, their business relies on the capture and flow of gigabytes of data from billions and billions of, of customers every year shopping on their on their services. How do you go about understanding that data and developing the algorithms to enable a company like Amazon to, to utilize AI and machine learning? So for me, a major reason to go, so sometimes I joke that I spent the first half of my career trying to persuade people to use machine learning, and then the second half trying to persuade people not to use machine <laughs> learning, because it's, it's gone through one of those transitions where like it's everywhere. And you know, it's these, that's what happens in exponential growth, isn't it? Yeah. One moment it's being underused, and the next it's sort of potentially, well, largely overused. And as a sort of, I sort of see myself, I, I can operate as a scientist sometimes, I know how to do that, but, but in spirit, I feel I'm more of an engineer. I'd wanted to graduate from my PhD and go and deploy these things in practice and help people. And there was just no chance to do that mm. back in 2000. No one was interested or, or the companies were interested, didn't rate me highly enough to recruit me. And so it just was this amazing opportunity to sort of say, well, I care about deployment. I care about the interface of what happens as you deploy in the real world. And to me, the place to do that was Amazon because... Because of what you described, but also this fact that the, as a business, that the, there's this interaction that, um, it's, it's Nicholas Negroponte who has this phrase, bits and atoms, right? So the difference between bits on the computer and atoms in the real world. And you can see right there, like tracing back to the sort of what example, like, sure, it's a computer now that we're doing the centrifugal governors in. I mean, that's how they control speed in a modern centrifugal system would be with a with a microprocessor and that's the bits and the atoms is the engine and then when you look at amazon the sort of thing that i ended up i, I got to work across a range of projects one of the great pleasures but i at some point realized that they valued people engaging specifically with one part of the business so we moved the team to do that but initially we worked in with prime air we worked with the Alexa team, um, you know, we worked across a different range of teams. And then, then we moved into the supply chain because I just sort of felt 
supply chain is like the most underrated, important thing that's driving the world. People's understanding of the influence of supply chain, the, the effects of containerization, you know, in terms of the general public is so limited, but the influence it's had on their lives is so massive. Yeah. And and when you think about, I often think about the sort of innovation which everyone sees is, oh, I can get AI to do this, speech recognition. That's actually a lot easier to deploy and deliver than the sort of innovation that, that in some sense helps society I don't know what I want to say more, but in a different way, uh, which is this, what I think of as brownfield innovation. So you have greenfield innovation and brownfield innovation, and that's like supply chain. Yeah. And the sort of notion was, well, Amazon, if Amazon doesn't know how to do this perfectly, then no one does. And of course, they don't know how to do it perfectly. And there was an enormous amount of learning there. But the way that one approaches it, sort of coming back to your question, sort of giving the motivation for going there, was something that I actually learned... Um, well, I think it was instinctive, but, but I saw the truth of it with work with um, colleagues working in the African context. So I, I helped set up an organization that's fully operational now called Data Science Africa. And what's so amazing about that is you're in a situation where a lot of the infrastructure we take for granted doesn't exist. But what does exist is sort of a mobile telecoms communication infrastructure. So the information infrastructure, it's like when you look at Britain, again, as a sort of mechanical engineering history, you see, oh, we've kind of got roads, turnpikes, canals, railway, new different roads, you know, all these different infrastructures for transporting goods and information. Well, what happens if that didn't happen and you go straight to information infrastructure? And it's, it's far more dynamic and interesting, the deployments you see in that context and the capabilities people have and imaginative than anything I've seen in sort of the UK or the US. So I really learned in that domain that the number one thing you do is you talk to the people on the ground about what the problems they're experiencing. There's no use in building a solution that you perceive is going to be useful for a small holding farmer in the north of Uganda and then going it to him and saying, here's a mobile phone. He said, well... That's actually not my problem. Do you want to know what my actual problem is? You know, ask that question first. And you really learn that lesson in that context, which is sort of going end to end because you're putting in solutions like, uh, and, and that project in particular is one on cassava monitoring that comes out of Makere University and uh, UN Global Pulse have also been involved. The project there was the idea of, oh, we can monitor crop disease in cassava, which is a sort of critical crop because it, um, it's one that's not so widely eaten in Af East Africa, but it can be left in the ground for a long time. So if other crops fail, then you go for your cassava. So if something is affecting that crop and diminishing that crop, then you're sort of diminishing the safety margin people have. So for that reason, disease in the crop is monitored. And, and the sort of interventions you can imagine is suggesting different breeds. So they had people from the Ministry of Agriculture driving around the country, looking at the plants and sort of getting the data back in. And the sort of the simple idea is, well, can we do this with mobile phones? And, you know, it feels like, well, out of the box, it's just going to take a couple of months to do that. You know, and then that's just simply not true at all, yeah. because, you know, there's the incentives to get farmers to take the photographs. There's how are you getting the data? There's all these sort of challenges and problems and interesting questions that, um, and the actual machine learning modeling you're probably doing at the end is relatively simple. But the modeling that you start doing on the phone gets complicated. So things like one of the things that turned out that they realized quite quickly is, it was a bit of a pain for the agricultural field testers to sort of, they had to count white fly on the underneath of a cassava leaf. And when you lift the leaf up, the sun shines on the white fly, they all fly away. So just the sort of app for taking a photo with the mobile phone that automatically counts the white fly, that, that turned out to be one of the useful things. And that lesson just so sticks with me that, you know, you sit and the tendency is, because we've done a lot of division of labor 
across all these things. So we're all sitting in our offices. And the problem with division of labor is it causes you to just think about, oh, you try and imagine someone else's problem and not go out and ask them what their actual problem was. And that gets worse when the problem's sort of carved up into different domains. Uh, and so really the main strategy I brought to Amazon <laughs> So I, so I feel like I'd go, a major reason to go into Amazon was I'll learn how do they solve all these problems and then I'll take those solutions back to my friends and say, hey, we do it like this. <laughs> but actually, it went the other way most of the time. I'm saying, well, we've got to be a bit a little more focused on what the customer cares about here or what the individual cares about and think a little bit. We, we can't sit here and just assume we know stuff. But that turns out to be depressingly useful thing to say in many scenarios. It strikes me as as the core to what you're saying there is that it's not just about the the artificial intelligence then going off and doing some stuff, but actually there's a huge amount of work to do before then, which is which is much more mechanical in nature, shall we say. I, I use that in that particular sort of context that we've got to have the data there before the AI can really do anything with it. So are we putting are we putting too much emphasis, do you think, onto the the AI part when actually what engineers are doing is the data collection and then the manipulation and understanding of that data so that they can process it more rapidly through the numerical algorithms that they're creating. Absolutely. And I have a way of saying that sort of being a great fan of Bazalgette, I say everyone wants flush toilets, no one wants to do the plumbing. <laughs> yeah. You can't have flush toilets without the plumbing. So people are saying, oh, that's great. Then they're sort of seeing, you know, even those sort of fancy Japanese flush toilets going, wow, look at what those things can do. But fundamentally, you know, you need a, a water source to connect up and a sewage to drain out. Now, that's particularly challenging. The, the further analogy I give, it's sort of building on the brownfield site, is imagine that you're retrofitting. Imagine it is, I think it's the 1860s when Bazalgette puts the sewers in, isn't it? Which is, you know, extraordinarily late, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, imagine that you have the job of retrofitting a, a, a tenement block with flush toilets. Well, well, how do you do it? Well, a lot of that is also exactly what I described. You have to go in and you have to speak to the equivalent of the farmer. You have to you wait, and you actually have to work very carefully and closely with perhaps one family to work out what you're going to need to do to install that without disrupting their lives too much. And then once you've done that, you're going to want to put as much infrastructure in on the outside of the building as possible and do as little as disruption to sort of get, you know, and it's like, where do I put this? And of course, actually, in practice, they put them outside, you know, and you mentioned earlier on a few names. Obviously, we talked about Alan Turing, and you certainly mentioned John McCarthy, who coined the phrase artificial intelligence. But we, we've moved on a long way since that work was being done. What kind of applications has, has AI found its way into? Uh, and what what is it being used for today that we might not realise that it's, it's actually being used for? I mean, it's very pervasive. It's, it's actually... It's an interesting question. We, we no longer talk about, well, let's use a computer to do things. Let's use a computer to listen to the podcast. Let's use a computer to watch television. I mean, it used to be a sort of thing, didn't it? And yeah. There's this wonderful sort of thing called the Solo's Paradox, which I think is 1986. It's a guy called Robert Solo who wrote in an article, we see computers everywhere apart from in the productivity statistics. <laughs> what he was saying is everyone's going on about these things. And I think there's a modern paradox in that in terms of it takes time for these technologies to be embedded. And I think we'll, one of the things I'm fond of saying is we'll really know that AI is successful when people stop saying AI yeah. or when people stop saying machine learning. You're just going to obviously use 
tool X to do Y, you know, because why would you do it any, any other way? I mean, we don't say, I'm going to use a sat-nav to travel. We just use a sat-nav. None of us yeah. can navigate anymore. Um, <laughs> and, you know, arguably inside the sat-nav, you know, there's planning routines that were worked out I believe, by that sort of first generation of AI researchers. So you could argue that that was a sort of one-time considered AI, but we don't think of it such now. Mm. So that's going on to an extent. And, and one way in which that's happening is just in terms of, for example, search engines are already using machine learning techniques. People would argue about whether they think it's AI or not, but they're certainly techniques that my community was involved in developing, the same community that has developed these more recent techniques uh, to decide which pages to return or which adverts to share yeah so it's in you know all sorts of things are going on in your mobile phone based on that or in terms of the amazon supply chain decisions are being made so what's going on there is the supply chain has this interesting problem of trying to match resource so there is as as a colleague of mine in amazon's head narayan he used to say uh a gentleman in Kerala beside the river who sold coconuts by sitting underneath a coconut tree. And then he said every time he runs out of coconuts, he climbs the tree, gets another coconut and sells that. Every time that tree runs out of coconuts, he moves to another tree. And then he would say, uh, this guy has the shortest supply chain in the world. And then he would sort of laugh a booming laugh. And then he would say, the magic of supply chain is to make you think that that's true for all products. So that there's mm-hmm. someone sitting under a laptop tree. But in practice, you know, it takes... If we go like end-to-end on how long it takes to build a laptop, maybe it takes 18 months. I don't know in terms of the raw materials, probably longer. Um, So what you have to do is you have to store laptops somewhere and you have to work out where to store them, who might be likely to buy them, and what the demand is. You're matching supply and demand. And, you know, that's a problem now that at Amazon scale is, is done by looking at data, trying to predict demand from user clicks on websites and trying to predict supply by understanding how suppliers have behaved in the past but then you get what it was at the Evergrande stuck across the Suez Canal and all your data goes out the window so this is a sort of challenge you have with that world that we're relying on this data and then everything gets messed up and because the the way the world has worked changes Um, so there's all those places where it's going on but then I think that the the areas where people are sort of been really surprised about and where general public is sort of really paying attention is perhaps in these sort of Initially, these AI capabilities in terms of phones can recognize people or we can recognize, you know, we can unlock our phones with our faces. You know, 10 years ago, that would have been very new technology or maybe 15 years ago. And now now we have these capabilities where machines seem like they can talk to us or something. They can share information using human language with us in, in what I think is at the moment, feels like a very surprising way. Yeah. In Cambridge, I lead AI at CAM, which is a sort of the university's flagship mission on AI. And what we're trying to do there is is not is is enhance and sort of you know help everyone who's trying to use AI. So it's like every domain, every domain across the university. Um, but you know, by way of example, you can look at we we have an AI for science program where we're trying to sort of help equip scientists with with these tools, whether it's small or large telescopes. And in that domain, the very large telescope would be sort of AlphaFold, the sort of protein folding capability developed by uh, DeepMind, which is 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 like these large language models. Is now a tool that is being widely used uh, in. Um, drug design or, you know, um, things that used to take a lot of experiments to do. But at the same time, those people are, are just doing microarray experiments, trying to look at sort of, um, well, actually not microarray nowadays, RNA-seq, trying to look at transcriptomic data and trying to make sense of transcriptomic, trying to map the way that, that uh, 
species evolve. And, and the nature of that data is quite different from the sort of text and image data that these models are classically looking at, because it tends to be very noisy. So it, it tends to sort of, it, it's got a high signal, uh, sorry, low signal to noise ratio. Um, speech and images tend to have a very high signal to noise ratio. Right. And it's not so clear, and we tend to have less of that data. So there's been this interesting wave where everyone's trying these techniques, which is working at very large data. But actually, one of the experiences of 15 to 20 years ago is that they didn't work well for these smaller data sets. And the weird thing is, with the number of people that have entered the field, that knowledge has sort of been lost. It's sort of interesting to watch that. Yeah. But simultaneously, that also means that those people are, in inverted commas, naively trying things that, in inverted commas, we knew didn't work. But in that process, they're shining the light in places where we didn't think you should go. So, so whether one should try and stop this or whether it's just embrace the chaos and say, hey, hey, cool, yeah. people are going to come up with, with new ideas. I mean, ironically, along the way, they're going to make a lot of obvious mistakes, but you can't fight that. Um, but then let's go into the digital humanities. So, so one of the things I'm working with a colleague trying to help him in his pipeline for understanding um, cuneiform. So he's a, a seriologist who works on the city of Nippur from 1500 BC to 1000 BC. So wow. 3,500 years ago, and people took all these cuneiform tablets out. And we'd like to understand what they say. And, and it it's just him sort of working on that. I'm, I'm loving that because we're, we're approaching that totally in the same spirit as, as I mentioned earlier. We're trying to sit down with him rather than saying, you need a neural network to do this. We're trying to say, what do you do? What do you enjoy about what you're doing? What would you like us to help with? What's the tedious bit? You know, and trying to sort of see where we can help automate his process and, and, and make things more useful. Yeah. Um, and then alongside that, we're, of course, seeing this sort of, you know, right now, everyone's extremely excited about the chat bot capabilities, yeah. which are doing extraordinary things in terms of allowing us to communicate with an entity that has absorbed, you know, it's like talking to the internet in some sense and, and not just getting a single internet search, back, but, but things that it's found across the internet being intelligently composed in a way that is more likely to answer the question rather than just finding the, the most similar question on the internet in the past. That's an extraordinary capability. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Alan King, who's uh, on the show, and we were kind of sort of saying, you know, in 20 years time, we'll kind of look back and at some of the tools that are being used now and almost imagine it to be a small child kind of learning, taking its first kind of tentative steps into into understanding the world around it. And, and do you think that what's going on at the moment in terms of the GPT, you know, the open AI, that, that that's where it is, that it's it's people kind of just having a tentative go and let, seeing where this technology takes them and, and letting it kind of develop itself as a kind of small child would? I think the, the answer is going to be along the lines of, I think it's just the start because the really exciting things come when humans and the technology combines. And that's what we see throughout history and that's what we're going to see again. So everything we imagine, everything we think is going to happen, we can't because there's this generation of creative people who are going to do things somewhat differently. Yeah, absolutely. AI is only kind of now reaching its usefulness and certainly as you've been describing it how it's come into its own in the last few years and and this is I suppose in part due to computing power do you think that there'll be a limitation to AI if we if we don't find new solutions particularly to kind of silicon-based computing methods. Yeah, that, I think that's super interesting. I've become fascinated by that and started trying to read on it. It's a difficult subject. I, 
And the analogy, again, is mechanical engineering. Like, what's the AI equivalent of the Carnot cycle? Yeah. So what, is there a limit of efficiency? And, and actually, the answer, I think, is, is, is embedded in the same sort of, you know, all that difficult work I did at university on thermodynamics and, and entropy. And th th there's, there's equivalent limitations in intelligence because entropy is the way we look at it in mechanical engineering is sort of it's energy that is distributed in ways that make it difficult for us to access because it's sort of moving about the place or temperature times entropy is 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 that now in in information terms we we look at information as negative entropy and that's the sort of shannon definition of entropy and it turns out there's quite a, a fundamental connection between these two ideas that there's, there's something called Maxwell's demon, which is is about the second law of thermodynamics, and it's a sort of uh, a puzzle that um, James Clerk Maxwell came up with in terms of imagine a demon inside the heat vessel, choosing which molecules move, and and then demonstrating that the entropy of the system could discrete decrease if the if the demon could choose to put fast molecules on one side, slow molecules on the other. But and the answer to this riddle is that well, it turns out that in order to do that, the the demon would have to say loosely, which is not a good way of saying, consume information. They'd actually have to delete information unless they had infinite capacity, and and in in that process, they would they would basically be um, entropy would be conserved when you consider the the demon's information processing capability. So I, there are some papers and there's a really interesting intersection between the field of information theory and, and people who sort of have a more thermodynamic view of the same type of mathematics, um, non-equilibrium thermodynamics, of, about what the limitations are in terms of uh, theoretical limits of prediction are. And it's a hobby of mine to read about that and it's not within my capabilities <laughs> to contribute to the conversation yet. Um, but I think that's that's the sort of theoretical side, and I think that yes, definitely we can see that there's something there. We don't have the equivalent of the Carnot cycle yet, but uh, one can see that that there might be something in that space, and there's some interesting people writing on this. Now, on the practical side, in terms of compute power, well, I don't know quite where we're at at the moment with data centers, but. The last time I looked at it, which was a few years ago, and I sort of hazarded a prediction at the time, someone said, well, it's only 1% of world, I don't know if it's energy or electricity, I can't recall, that was being spent on data. And I, and I thought, well, how much are we spending on Africa? And it wasn't far off, you know, the whole continent. And I'm including North Africa, so major cities like Cairo. So that's a sort of sobering thought. And, and my prediction was, and I think the five years is up, so, so I haven't retrace my sources to find out if it's true, is that the data center energy would overtake the energy that Africa is consuming. I don't know if that's true or not. I just felt it was an interesting prediction to make. And that's a question in itself. That's a more practical question, isn't it? More in line, I think, with your original question that, you know, that these are limits where we're, are, are they limits or are they we're just going to sort of be spending more and more energy on, on AI and compute? Um, yeah, I, I'm like you. I'm kind of on the 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 edge of that, and I guess it's a, a computer science question in some respects. But but I, I suspect that if we're going to reach the kind of expectation that society has in terms of AI and machine learning, then we're going to need a different form of computing power to be able to deal with all of that data that we are collecting. We need another James Watt moment. We need separate condensers. We do. And, and, and I think that that is something that I do find sort of inspiring. You know, it's the Newcomen engine. I've sort of said that. I've used that analogy quite a lot. Yeah. 
I, th- I think it's you know it's quite plausible that, that it will come because I, and I think that a lot of the things I th- think about are well once this computing becomes so pervasive you know I, I cycle with people who work at ARM and you know once you start building hardware do you remember that that time when like if you watched a film on your mobile phone then the battery was going to be dead within fifteen minutes and then. Yeah. I couldn't get over it on a flight. Someone just sat there watching on whatever their device was, you know, for hours. I'm like, how the hell is that going on? And of course, it's going on because at some point, those algorithms that were operating in software have been integrated in hardware and people have designed chips that, that do the decoder. And now I also realize I can watch films on flights. It's the problem, the pain with being an early adopter, you get the wrong impression of the technology. <laughs> yeah. So of course those those sort of things will happen, but then but but these technologies are going to become more pervasive. So there's a sort of interesting question of of, uh, of both of those effects occurring at the same time. Alan King is head of global business development at the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. Alan joined the IMECE as a business development executive in 2004 with a background in both engineering and business. His father, both an engineer and joint owner of an engineering firm, introduced Alan to engineering at an early age, and he then combined his fascination for the subject with an interest in business at university. In his role as Senior Business Development Manager for Global Projects, Alan's team maintains key relationships with major employers both nationally and internationally, and also provides support for the UK Armed Forces and MOD. Alan is now focusing his attention on how artificial intelligence could enhance both member services and support staff in their everyday tasks within the institution. He also recently wrote a fascinating article for Institution News on the practical applications of AI and machine learning in the engineering sector. Alan, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. You have been fascinated by the concept of AI for a very long time now. Can you tell us what kind of got you interested in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I guess it for me, it's just been you know been, been a very long journey. It started really, um, I guess, in my sort of teenage years. I, I heard a radio show by Douglas Adams called "The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy," and <laughs> yeah, um, there were quite a few sort of AIs, I guess, on on that show that really kind of sparked my interest in in the whole thing. Uh, and around the same time, I had a chess computer. I played a lot of chess uh, when I was younger, and it was I bought it in Tandy, and it was a, a computer chess um, system that. As you started to play it, if you started to beat it, it would literally start to cheat. Uh, and I sort of convinced myself that this this thing had a mind of its own. Basically, it would let you, it, you know, if it, if it was winning, it was fine. But the moment you started to kind of, you know, threaten it, it was right. Well, I'm going to start changing the rules. I think from there on, really, I was just became really interested in, in robots and the idea of you know something having intelligence, and that just created a real curiosity in me. Really, that I've been sort of following that that story, I suppose, in trajectory since then, really. And, you know, it's been through some significant changes in, in my lifetime. I mean, I saw, I suppose, as a, as, a, as a young teenager, child, I saw the arrival, I guess, of the desktop computer. Uh, my first computer was a Spectrum. And then shortly after that, we had like an Amstrad desktop. And, you know, and of course, the, the effect that that had on the workspace and, and for my father's organization where he worked was huge. And then I guess as I entered the kind of working world, the internet, arrived quite shortly afterwards. I think I was probably two or three years into my career when everything changed again. And, you know, suddenly we went from taking letters to the post office to email and Google and websites being built. And it was an absolute paradigm shift. 
Uh, and then I guess really for the last 12 years, we've been seeing the, the effect of mobile mm. technology as well. So, but all of these things all the way through, there's been AI stuff happening in the background and there have been changes and developments and, and things going on. But really in the last sort of, I suppose since 2017, um, AI's really started to sort of become the next big thing, I guess. And, and last year, we really saw that arriving, obviously, in the form of uh, the open language model. It's, you know, chat GPT. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm a, a child of that generation. And so, yeah, Marvin, the paranoid android with a brain the size of a planet was was something that I kind of grew up on as well. So I, I get your enthusiasm from that. as It's something that really excited me as a young person getting interested in science and engineering too. And seeing that development of technology to where we are now, where, as you rightly said, the uh, GPT tools have become almost uh, ubiquitous and and I'm I'm guessing we'll get onto that conversation as as we go through but in your role as head of global uh, membership development strategy what are you seeing uh, as being the the benefits of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the development of particularly engineering skills i think with you know ai it's going to really change the landscape of of what engineers do um, there's no there's no question about that in my mind um, there's there's a lot to think about within that statement um, and you know there's ethics there's obviously the job situation um but it's undoubtedly going to be something that really sort of changes the way engineers think function work and you know live work and grow in terms of in terms of their lives i mean i say with my my father was an engineer and he saw the arrival of of computerization in in his world and if you looked at what he was doing at the end of his career versus where he started perhaps in the sort of 60s as a tool maker you know it's a very different landscape and you know he was writing programs for computers in, in the sort of early 90s that could do calculations that formerly had taken his colleagues weeks to do. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they were being done in minutes with machines. And, and I think AI represents a, 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 you know, a significant shift in the same way, uh, possibly even greater. Um, and the machines themselves you know, will have the capability to sort of feed back. Um, and it's, you know, you're, not, you're no longer just dealing with a kind of you put X input in and you get Y input out. You've got a machine that's actually able to work with you. It becomes like a co-pilot and can guide and actually support what you're doing, actually able to rationalize what you're telling it and potentially provide advice and guidance on how to get more out of the system. Yeah, I've certainly seen that in in the healthcare applications that we're finding AI sort of creeping into, particularly things around, uh, for example, like MRI scans, where you're looking for cancers and things like that, being able to not only use the human eye to, to look and see where those cancers are, but using the machines and the the complexity of the algorithms to actually detect minute changes in cell structure that the human eye and the human brain just wouldn't register. I think having those two things in parallel is going to be a real bonus for for any engineer being able to detect or or understand what's going on around them as they build or make or design things. Yeah, I would say, and you know, it's very interesting sort of reverse ethical question there as well, really, in the sense that, you know, if you were looking to have a diagnosis done, would you prefer a doctor or a machine? And I suppose instinctively people often have a misunderstanding of technology and, and particularly AI. Uh, maybe they're a bit nervous about the machine doing it, you know, but I want a doctor yeah. to do it. But actually, it's statistically speaking, the machine's likely to do a better job uh, in that instance, as you say, able to detect things that perhaps the 
the human eye would miss. And ethically, it would maybe be wrong to get the doctor to do it in that in that instance. Yeah, I think certainly where where it comes to technology that's that's on the micro or even nano scale, where you, you're just not going to be able to get that level of detail from from human solely human interaction, being able to use a computer or use machine learning to analyze and to understand and to collect all of this massive amount of data to be able to address those problems, I think is is going to make the engineering community much more effective in, in what it does uh, over time. But but let's come to to kind of the, the opposite side of that. D- do you think that we should be concerned about the, the risks of AI and machine learning, particularly in terms of the, the perceived fear of job losses in engineering due to AI applications? I, I think we should be concerned, yes, of course. But it, it needs to be really managed, this, this process, as we go through this. And whenever we've seen in society great change occurring through technology, uh, throughout history, you know, through the industrial revolutions or the agricultural revolutions, you you have this need for reskilling and upskilling um, of humans and to take on new roles and new opportunities and new jobs. And what we have always seen is these new opportunities appear. And even if you look in sort of recent years, as I said with the examples I gave earlier, the desktop computer and, you know, the internet, you, it created in itself a, a whole new industry in many different yeah. areas that create you know, maybe as many, if not more jobs than sort of previously exist. Change is always inevitable. Um, and particularly, you know, when we live in a sort of technological society. So I think what we have to try and do is manage it correctly and do it in the right way. And, you know, through the 20th century, many changes happened that were catastrophically damaging, say, for the environment, which, you know, if you roll things back, you would do it differently this time around. Yeah. So yeah. I think with AI, there's definitely a risk of not getting it right. This is where I think, you know, organizations and companies and governments need to really take that kind of level of responsibility and think about how they do it, how they implement it, um, the pace at which that, you know, change is implemented across. And there's a real need to work with individuals and people and employees and help them understand what this means because mm. people are going to be afraid of it. it. You know, there's definitely a fear. Um, and of course, a bit like the large language models themselves, which are trained on data Human beings have all been trained on, you know, science fiction and science fiction says that the robots are going to take over and, you know, we're all doomed. So, um, and we've seen a lot of that actually in the last couple of weeks, just in the sort of mainstream media. Yeah. And a, a lot of it is kind of hyperbole. And, and I think, um, there's definitely a, a job to be done there to sort of control that narrative and help the sort of, if you like, the, the, the sensible conversation be the pervasive one. Uh, and that, you know, that will go a long way. But I think, you know, in terms of the individual, they shouldn't, be terrified or scared or worried, um, but they absolutely should think about how they can embrace the new world. And you know, one of the one of the things I've been working on lately is a, is a paper around sort of harnessing the potential of AI in organisations. And you know, part of the conversation is that in that is about how you actually ride this wave that's coming rather than sort of you know being washed away by it. Yeah, I think it is about um, ensuring that people get the right level of understanding and education so that they can make informed decisions on the adoption of, of such disruptive technology. But you're absolutely right. You know, you and I grew up in the in the time when desktop computers were, were suddenly arriving on the scene and the world thought people were just going to go away. Everything was going to be run by computer. And indeed, that's not the case. So I guess we have to make sure that the engineering community and more broadly broadly wider society have a better uh, an understanding of this technology so that they can adopt it in, in the ways that they see fit really yeah i think so and at this point as well you know it's important to remember that this this technology isn't sentient 
Um, we haven't reached AGI yet, you know, which is artificial general intelligence, which is where yeah. you would say now the machines are thinking for themselves. So, um, although, you know, Microsoft did publish in their paper last week that they felt ChatGPT4 um, had shown sparks of, of AGI, but I still think we're quite a long way away from that. And there's a risk that we kind of, you know, anthropomorphize these kind of technologies and, and, and imbue human characteristics into them that maybe aren't even there. So, you know, they are at the moment, you know, machine learning. And sometimes I think the AI term is used because it's, it's more, you know, fashionable or trendy. Yeah. But really it's, it's data being modeled through machine learning, being guided, being prompted. There are guardrails being put in place as well by organizations like OpenAI who are you know, obviously building the, the, the most advanced models at the moment that try to keep the, the, the models, you know, working sensibly. So I think as long as we sort of stay within that, that realm and explain to people what's happening, then there's no reason why, you know, the technology can't be implemented successfully without really, you know, causing, uh, you know, huge disruption. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there have been some quite interesting experiments, shall we say, in inverted commas, with trying to test the limits of some of these algorithms by giving them data that's really quite odd or at odds with society's view on things to see how they would react. And there's been some very interesting outcomes from that, hasn't there? Uh, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, OpenAI are very open about this themselves. I, I watched a long interview with um, Sam Altman the other day, and they, they've obviously got a model that they, they've got all the guardrails removed from, and they're, they're really looking to see where that might take them or what might happen. Uh, but that helps them learn about where to put the rails in. And they use a, a process called reinforcement learning with human feedback, where they essentially take two you know, responses from the machine, um, from the same input, and then feedback to the machine and say, well, actually, the human who's reviewed your responses, preferred this one, yeah. and this is why. And so you keep going through this process, and this this sort of trains the machine further into understanding actually what it should be providing rather than perhaps the the, the, the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. And, and you can build, if you're an organization, you can build these models yourselves, and you can build them in a way that, you know, you are controlling what they call, the, say, the temperature, which is the kind of level of creativity versus perhaps it being... Uh, a very sort of statistically more sensible answer. And, you know, horses for courses there. If you're doing marketing, you want it to be more creative. But if you're doing, yeah. you know, some kind of medical application, you need it to be more accurate, right? So so you can build these models in this way. So it, it doesn't have to be the Wild West. And organizations, if they do it properly, can create things that can really add value and, and you know, be a co-pilot for for humans yeah. and hopefully not cause, as I say, too much, too many problems or too much disruption. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about OpenAI because their GPT tools, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of broadly just describe them as tools because they've, they've got a whole batch of things that you can you can use if you go onto their website. I mean, they seem to be sweeping the internet at the moment with everything from writing reports and articles to creating completely new pieces of artwork, right through to kind of voice and face recognition adaptions of, of the software. How accurate do you think these tools are at the moment compared to the more traditional creative skills? You, you touched on that just briefly. So I, I wondered if we could explore that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting question because the tools are obviously improving very quickly. I mean, if you looked at, let's just take the art stuff, for example, if you looked at something like Mid Journey or Dali, even a year ago, um, and you asked it to you know create an image based on a text prompt, what you would get would be something that was cute. It was, it was interesting. It was impressive. You were kind of like, well, that's quite cool. But it wasn't, 
going to convince anyone that it was real. But actually, some of the stuff now that you're seeing in things like Mid Journey 5 is so photorealistic. I mean, maybe mm. it looks like it's got a filter on it, but it's still, um, it's getting very close to, you know, being convincing that it's hard to now tell the difference from the real image that you, you might have taken with the one that you've created with a text prompt. So the accuracy is getting, getting better all the time. Um, and similarly with the kind of text generative stuff, you know, with the open AI chatbots, it's again, that you know, chat GPT-4's capability versus 3.5 is significantly, you know, uplifted. And its ability to produce, you know, interesting content is that it, it's critical to say to get the accuracy out of it. Again, there's a lot of human input is actually required because it's not as simple as you just throw a couple of words at it and it churns out, you know, a, a detailed report for you. Actually, the prompt engineering that goes into creating detailed outputs is in itself, you know, an art form and, and a form of programming in a way, albeit with the human, you know, English language, so, or whichever language you're, you're operating in. And that's really what gets you to the output is, is you're basically describing to, the, you know, to the model, this is what, I, this is what I need. This is why this is the format I want it to be in. Um, this is the information I'm going to provide you with. This is the assessment I'd like you to make against this criteria. So you're really, you're really building this out and, and, and explaining to it, you know, what you want it to do. And when you do that, its capability is, is incredibly impressive. The data that it draws from, of course, though, is vast. In the case of OpenAI, they've basically scraped pretty much most of the internet and lots of other publications and articles, compressed it, if you like, into, into one box almost. And then it's, it's drawing from all of that, almost like the, almost all of the sort of text input that the human race has generated, kind of, and using that as its, as, as its brain to, to, to pull its, its, its thoughts and ideas out of. And of course, within that data, there's a lot of inaccuracies, right? So, you know, we all know, we've all had a Wikipedia moment where you've looked at something on Wikipedia, and gone, that's not right. You know, that's just clearly not, that's clearly not true. And of course, OpenAI can fall into the same, the same, you know, problem. So I think you've got to be quite careful. And if you're creating outputs at the moment, you know, the, that, that kind of statistical accuracy may not be there. And it's been known to just make stuff up and almost hallucinate. Yeah. Um, if it can quite find the answer it needs, you know, go, well, I'll just kind of make something up and it'll be fine. So I think, you know, with that, that side, at the moment, the accuracy isn't quite there. However, there are things that are going to change that. One, um, the data that it provides in the future will be probably more checked, statistically vetted. OpenAI, for example, are, and others will do this, are building what they call the foundry, where you know an organization, for example, could put all of its data into a particular server, and then that's almost like you know hermetically sealed, ring-fenced, and you know that that data that's gone in is accurate. And then you, you have a, a system then that's working off that data. You know, So if you're a large engineering organization, uh, and then it would be to produce, you could be a lot more confident in the output yeah. of that data. It's not, it's not at risk or it's not contaminated by perhaps misinformation. The other point to make about, about it as well is the difference between misinformation and disinformation. Quite often people, you see them getting very sort of vocal on the internet about the thing producing kind of, you know, disinformation yeah. when really it's just misinformation. It's, the, the, the model itself isn't capable of providing disinformation, i.e. it's, you know, it's thinking, I think, well, I'm going to corrupt people and tell them something, you know, different. And it's just wrong. It's just, it's just, it's just basically wrong. It probably doesn't even know that it's wrong. You know, that's the yeah. thing. And again, we come back to this kind of anthropomorphizing of the, of the model, thinking that it's really thinking when it isn't. It's just working off, off a data set effectively. So, you know, the accuracy can be improved. It's not brilliant. And I'm sure when we look back 
20 years from now will say, you know, that was, that was pretty basic stuff. It's kind of childlike right now, isn't it? You, you know, as you said, you know, it kind of thinks things up or imagines things if, it's, uh, if it can't fill a gap in the question that you've asked. So it's almost like a child kind of using its imagination to, to make a solution, I suppose. And as, as you rightly said, you know, in 20 years time, we'll look back when it's into its teenage years and perhaps think, yeah, yeah, it was still very childlike at that at that point. Yeah, it's interesting that. And I was listening to a, a podcast the other day and they were saying, you know, actually, but if you push a human being enough on a question, eventually they'll start making stuff up as well. You know? so it's <laughs> yeah. all, in that sense, maybe it's not that different to us. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I, I think as well, you know, in terms of thinking about the engineering community, they're constantly looking for for new ways to be more effective, more efficient through the application of technology. Do, do you think AI then is in the future is going to complement or conflict with the way that engineers work? And, and how do you think that might manifest itself? I think it will be complementary in most cases, you know, and enhancing yeah. things like efficiency, innovation, collaboration. I, I think we're going to see huge gains, you know, times 10, times 50 gains probably um, over the next sort of 20 years. I mean, there's obviously some conflict around automation where you have displacement of jobs potentially. And, uh, and again, that comes back to what we said earlier about the adequate transition for workforces into into the new new jobs, new roles, yeah. new technologies. But I think overall, it, it is a force multiplier for humans and uh, what human beings can achieve and through engineering. And Steve Jobs had a very nice sort of analogy he used years ago, um, which was, you know, the condor is supposedly the most efficient animal on the planet in terms of distance traveled and, and energy expended. And, uh, you know, human beings will be somewhere sort of halfway down the scale or uh, whoever's at the bottom of the scale, I don't know, a sloth or something perhaps. Um, but if you put a human being on a bike, on a bicycle, they suddenly become more efficient than the condor. You know, and, and it, I think that's what AI will do it and within the engineering sector. It will allow us to suddenly do things that we could, A, things we could never do before, but B, do things in, in a way that's so much more efficient and actually yeah. allow engineers to perhaps focus on other problems and other issues um, and perhaps have free them up from doing perhaps some of the more uh, mundane work. And again, back to speaking about my father earlier, you know, some of the stuff they were doing at the start of his career, endless hours of calculations. Well, yeah. you know, when they didn't have to do that because the machines could do it, they could think about other things, right? And, yeah. and there were other thing, other problems to solve. So I think that there is huge opportunity for engineering and automated design, optimization, you know, things like predictive maintenance yeah. as well, advanced robotics. The, the, the ability for a robot not to just be following a sort of sequential pattern, but to actually be able to sort of look at a, a situation, analyze it, understand it, and react accordingly. So suddenly you have the idea where humans and robots can almost work in together and one is reacting off the other. Mm. And, and you know, if the human does that, it goes, right, well, now I'm going to do this then because he's already done that, so I don't need to do that now. And you, you can suddenly create, you know, this relationship that we've never had before where the, the two things can really work in synchronicity and um, I think that's potentially incredibly powerful. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. You've been looking at the application of AI as a tool in, in the workplace and particularly focusing on HQ, of course. What uses have you found for AI and, and how are you applying them? I mean, I think the first thing to say is obviously very early days with, with obviously what we're doing at IMAQ at the moment. I mean, this stuff has really come to life, I suppose, over the last sort of three or four months um, in terms of the, the kind of tools that we have now at our disposal. Yeah. And of course, they're evolving every day. So it's, a, it's an early sort of plan. But, you know, some of the things we will look at is obviously 
where we can automate perhaps routine tasks and activities. We can certainly start using it uh, in terms of content generation and, you know, in and around marketing, they're already looking at AI tools to do that. And just generally where we can increase efficiencies and, and, and leverage those across across the business. And I think as we get deeper into this, there's going to be other opportunities as we're able to start thinking about perhaps the, the, the back end, um, the data-driven stuff that, you know, yeah. uh, we could start digging into and, and understanding what that means and be able to analyze data in terms of our strategy and our development um, and the kind of products and services we might be able to then develop going forward for, for our members and, you know, AI-powered chatbots, you know, basically improve that kind of personalized experience. One, one thing I've been looking at in some detail is the ability to perhaps look at professional review applications that our members might be completing to become chartered right. and actually using AI tools to provide them really good feedback. You know, so it's not undertaking the review. We'll, I, I think we're always going to be using humans for that, but it's the ability to provide them with really good quality and fast, instant, really, uh, feedback around what they're writing uh, and to help them, if you like, further enhance um, and develop their applications. So in the first instance, we're developing um, an app for the business development team, which they, when they're working, we're talking to candidates and members, they can obviously use this with them to, to help do that. But it may be eventually that, that, you know, if there's something that we can bake into, you know, the application process online as well, that's, that's obviously an option for the future. And then beyond that, I've sort of been working on a, a five-layer model. So I've been putting together a, a paper on this about how to harness the potential of AI across organizations. And within that, thinking about the sort of different layers that you might have. And obviously, as I said, the back end, you've got the front end, the customer-facing or member-facing uh, applications and tools that they might come across on the website. And then across each department, you know, you're going to look at what, what the potential is for AI within those. And then obviously, staff, tools, and training is huge because... You know, as this stuff rolls through, upskilling and making staff aware of the opportunities that are available to them, the kind of things that are actually now at their disposal can be really helpful uh, and make their jobs faster, easier and more more creative, and more interesting. Yeah. And then I suppose the final, final layer um, is the sort of public-facing thought leadership piece. And again, looking to see how iMakey itself can then vocalize what's happening in this space to its members, but also to the broader uh, public as well and the importance of, of AI um, and its integration in the engineering profession and you know hopefully help guide organizations and think about the sort of transformation they might need to go through as well by providing content around that and webinars and, and services that can support them. I think you're absolutely right. I think if we as an institution are, are going to make our case for the application of technology, then we really need to be using it, don't we? Yeah. So it's a great opportunity, I think, for us to, as an institution, certainly for the staff to be trying some of this technology and getting first-hand experience of it so that they can translate that into a really informed pieces to society about why technology is so valuable and so useful to them. So I, I think that's a great opportunity. Alan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure to hear not only your enthusiasm for the subject, but also how we as an institution are going to benefit from this technology in the future. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you. I continued my chat with Neil Lawrence about the opportunities and risks associated with AI and how it might help assist in the education of engineers and wider society in the future. From our point of view as engineers um, and scientists and so on, 
AI has been a term that's become ubiquitous over the last few years, and we're we're fully comfortable with that in terms of what what it means and what it does. But do you think that the media and and I suppose to some respects industry as well is using the term on about everything that they can possibly stick AI onto? Do you think society has really got a clear understanding of what AI actually is and how it's used? Or do you think that the term is just being mispresented or, or misappropriated due to a lack of understanding? I think it's hard. I mean, I think it probably is. And I think I used to fret about that. And I remember getting, and I can't remember, back in when I was at Sheffield, I got an email from someone that I think sort of, and I'm very interested in manufacturing. And it was before I was at Amazon. And I, so I always would read an email like this, but someone was sort of saying, uh, yeah, we're looking at Internet of Things in an industry 4.0 environment with some other, like, I know, some other term thrown in there. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and it was all this sort of jargon to which I sort of replied, I think what you're saying is you're trying to digitize your manufacturing in terms of instrumenting what's going on in your factories so that you can get a better handle on you know and it's uh, <laughs> and if that's true then here are some interesting ways that that i i think we can help and okay so on the one hand you get it because people you know th th there's an interesting thing going on with digital twins at the moment in terms yeah. of a new term that that ministers get excited about and there is definitely something underlying it. And the, the, the challenge is that will the sort of hype underlying it that is that is hot air, is funding things that we already know doesn't work, overtake the sort of truth that's underlying it? And I don't know, these things have just become, I often think of Canute sitting on the beach of trying to stop the tide. You can't fight these things. You know, when a big wave's coming in, a big wave's coming in, you're going to get drenched, you know, either get off the beach or get in your swimming trunks. You know, it's a... Uh, <laughs> It's one of the two. And so I, I sort of end up with a, with a sort of feeling the, that that's something you just have to realize is part of the process of, yeah. of new technology, particularly in, in this sort of information-rich era. Um, you have to continue trying to trace what you think is important. And I think this is the challenge for a lot of people in business. I sort of think the main thing, and I think this applies across the board, that, that a lot of these hype waves give you is some suspension of the in inverted commas physics of your domain like you have this intuition about how things should work and then people say oh well there's a new thing and it's magical and things don't work any way in, in the way you thought before and you know it's like really <laughs> um and, and and it's hard to know how to react to that because a calibrated reaction is hard because you haven't seen this technology before and i think people come down in one of two ways they the first typical way, they, they've read about all this in Wired magazine, so they think, oh, this is great technology. So they go all in on it and agree that the physics isn't suspended. And then things go disastrously wrong. And, and then they become massively skeptical, and then they struggle to assimilate the technology. And a major question is, well, how, how do you get to that calibrated operating point where people feel empowered enough to bring their domain knowledge, their understanding, whether it's of mechanical engineering, whereas whether it's of optimization of the railway timetables or you know the efficiency of a diesel engine or whatever it is, and allow them to assimilate this new capability in, in a way that enhances what they're doing and doesn't displace their expertise. And I think that's a very, very tricky question. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's, um, there's a lot of work for us to do, I think, within the engineering community and, and 
particularly in your community, specifically in, in AI and machine learning and, and that area, that, that there's uh, some education to do in terms of what this subject is and what it isn't. And ju- just because it sounds cool and there's this new technology, it's not, you, you can't just jump on a bandwagon and, and kind of use, use the language when you're not actually You can, but you might fall off and it might yeah. hurt. <laughs> Yeah, but you you can't you can't necessarily use it as a term and not necessarily understand the the use of it or the practicalities of it or or indeed how it's actually going to fit into your business or or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's one of the hardest things. And but we've seen that with previous waves of technology as well. So there's perhaps lessons to learn from there. And that's why I'm always looking to the past and always looking to technological innovations in the past. But I love those stories as well. Yeah, yeah. As with all disruptive types of technology, we need to ensure as engineers that we we safeguard society as as much as ethically possible. What what types of risks are envisaged as a result of using AI? I, I'm I'm thinking particularly around job security and also uh, technological equity as well. Mm, technological equity is, I think, is key, and I've I've tried to get used to a few different habits because. Being in this for a while and seeing sort of what people get worried about and think, oh yeah, that does sound worrying, and then actually seeing downstream effects and go, oh that, but we missed that one. And, and actually, containerization would be a good example of that, right? So, containerization has had a dramatic and shocking effect on world economies and people's livelihoods. You know, Liverpool dockers don't exist anymore. The size of ships has changed. The manufacturing of ships has changed. So, you know, the, you don't make ships on the Clyde as much anymore. And, and no one sort of sat down and said, well, what, what's going to be the effect of this quite simple and sensible idea that, well, let's just use the standard size container. Massively disruptive. And most people aren't even aware it happened. You know, and it's, it's, yeah. it's what means it's cheaper to sort of shell frozen prawns fished off Edinburgh in China because you, you've ended up building an international global supply chain where the cost of transport and the energy associated with transport as well. Let's not sort of say that there's, I mean, I know people worry about the carbon cost of food, but if it's being transported at scale, it's fairly minimal. It's not food miles in the air. That's different. Means the the economics of of, of where, what things are done, where have a significant downstream effect on, on people who were told that these were jobs that they could and should do. And yet the debate is dominated still by professions for, for very sensible reasons because professions are now looking at these modern capabilities and saying oh my goodness fancy emails that's what i do or oh my goodness converting plain english into legalese no one can understand that's what i do or you know whatever they're saying and, and suddenly we can automate that and, and naturally people feel that that's threatening and yet we're struggling to, to look at the sections of society who are most affected. And if we look at terms of social media, we can talk about genocides that were triggered by sharing of information. You know, we talk about the Rwandan genocide. Radio had an enormous role in, in, a, in a time when radio was broadly controlled, but it tends to be less controlled in African states. There's a lot of pirate radio stations that aren't even pirate. It's just accepted, right? Um, but now you have that in... In, in technologies that are well beyond the capabilities of, of governments to sort of intervene on. And yet we're worrying, of course, about elections in the United Kingdom or the United States, where we can also see this disruption, where we actually have quite 
large capabilities in terms of English language monitors who are trying to sort of eliminate misinformation. What does this mean for the Lugandan language where we don't have such capabilities or, or code mix languages, which are very common in a lot of these states? And, and these are, of course, in the places that can least afford to be disrupted. I think we have to also be careful about you know, dismissing the very real concerns of, of people in, in the more privileged positions. But of course, the debate is dominated by people yeah. in the privileged positions. And yet the history shows again and again and again that it's people who are less empowered to decision-make that suffer the most. And whatever route that is, it's because they're on the edge. It's because, you know, I always think of these coin-pushing machines where there's some coins on the edge. And it, it may be the coin you drop in that moves and initiates the movement, but the coins that fall over the edge are the ones that were close to the edge. And, and that's the people disruption effects. And we see that across all information revolutions. And I think we can even see in previous industrial revolutions as some form of information revolution as, as well. So do you feel then that we have an obligation as engineers to to mitigate as much of that risk as possible in terms of providing AI solutions or machine learning solutions to as as much of society as possible to ensure that that those risks to to either jobs or to to the availability of information is minimized? Uh, yeah, as much as absolutely. But I also sort of think that there's there's a massive challenge that I also perceive that that what you've got is a section of society that's capable of creating solutions, and a section of society that doesn't have that capability, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. Society would be extremely dull if it was all engineers. <laughs> but the conversation cannot be one where those without that capability point at those with that capability and say, you need to do this as well, because building these solutions is difficult in itself. And one of the problems we've had is a debate that is increasingly divided, because you can all have a lovely debate that's disconnected from the reality of the technology or the capabilities that we have, because, you know, that's totally unconstrained. And now we can all think what we like, and we can talk about what we like. And that's interesting. But there's a challenge there if that's disconnected from where we are in terms of technical capabilities, or if it's illusory in terms of the sort of interventions it suggests that might make a difference, then, yeah, I mean, so, so I, I have to be careful because I agree very strongly with your initial point, but I'm also sort of concerned about the burden on those who we're looking for solutions to sort of provide not just the solution for the technology that we're asking for that's going to bring the benefits, but to be doing all this additional stuff while constantly under the bright light of criticism of everyone else. I mean, it's a lot to take on. Yeah. Now, having said that, I accept that challenge. You know, I've been working in this field for a long time and, I, I, and I'm passionate about, I happen to be, and it's lucky, right? It's not like that I'm sort of, somehow clever or better than the next person just circumstances dictate i got into this field early and then i feel that that we have a responsibility i think my colleagues feel that responsibility to differing levels i mean a lot of people just got into this because they wanted to create cool stuff right and they're <laughs> continuing to create cool stuff like from their perspective um it's interesting how i mean they're, they're also very aware i mean the, the notion okay so there is a lack of diversity in a very real extent in some areas of the field. But if I go to meetings with my colleagues, the sort of people I'm mixing with, it's far more diverse than most meetings I'm in, regular meetings, because the international nature of the field, the fact that the field has become aware of um, sort of gender representation, that, that, you know, or maybe I'm just making it my business to, because I find 
diversity of people more interesting. Mm. And yet, when we have letters written for moratoriums, they're written by a very non-diverse group, which I, I find interesting in itself. So the situation is complex, and I think that the, the challenge is that one of the gifts of, of, of being involved in engineering is, is you often, certainly if you do large-scale systems, interacting systems, and as I moved into software, that's something that comes up a lot, you gain the understanding that you sometimes have to stand off the whole ecosystem and look at, well, what are the broad inputs and outputs? A bit like people did with heat engines. You know, you have, you've got pistons and all these sort of things, but you end up summarizing it with temperature and pressure and entropy, and that gives you a sort of good sense of what's going on. And as you step back and have that view, well, you you have a similar answer and actually with the similar challenges that we sort of spoke about before. You've got information in and processed information out. And then you've got the challenges of who has access to that information, who's controlling that information, and who that information pertains to. And then you can start sort of looking at, I think, regulatory interventions. And I love the, the fact that on the steam engine, it is a regulator that turns. To, to slow the engine. So regulatory in- interventions does not necessarily mean we invent a new law. It's just any intervention, in my mind, where you sort of say, well, what sort of infrastructures or institutions do we need to create that start realigning the uh, incentives of this ecosystem with, with the people the ecosystem is looking to serve? And a lot of those those the answers come down to, well, there's a lot of this is about control of personal data. Where's the data originating from? Where's the power originating from? How, how do you put that power back in the hands of the people it originated from? You know, because yeah. at the moment, what you're seeing is that that's them being locked away. You know, people who've done very innovative things and deserve some credit for that, but they, they shouldn't be the only ones to access, you know, the entirety of human historic culture. <laughs> that's quite <laughs> yeah. problematic. Yeah. Do, do you think then we, we might see a weaponization? I, I, I hate using that word, but a weaponization of, of this type of technology in terms of things like cybercrime, data protection and say, and surveillance. You, you touched on, obviously, the, the letter from Elon Musk and a, a whole group of, of people recently who have said work must stop on these kind of technologies. So how, are we going to see bad actors take on some of this technology for their own nefarious purposes and and what can we do i suppose about that well absolutely but in some sense to quote elon musk referring to a different thing the genie's out of the bottle i mean yeah but in some sense the genie's been emerging for a while i mean the the problem of misinformation on the internet you know one of the i i feel the internet's degraded in terms of a source of quality information because because the entire incentive structure is to drive people towards pages with adverts. And the way that you do that is you try and overwhelm search engines and undermine quality information for for cheap information. Mm. That's been going on for the best part of a decade to the extent that, and I don't know if it's recency bias, that in the early internet, of course, it was covering things that were recent, but things that I know exist on the internet sometimes seem unfindable. And that's going to get much, much worse. And and there's a problem in that, in the, the sort of like the dog chasing its own tail or there's Ouroboros, the snake that consumes itself, is that it's polluting the very training data. It's It's like... River and water ecosystems are fascinating analogies for this in terms of the complexity of data as a resource. And so the data pollution term is very real here. You have these engines consuming water and then polluting the source Mm. because, in effect, what you're going to get is very plausible text that is difficult to unpick from human-originated text. And so you're going to have the AI consuming its own tail. Now, my best bet on on, on the response to that, which I find intriguing, is that um, 
we'll probably have to fall back on some of the mechanisms in society we've always used as proxies for quality of information. Right. And these mechanisms themselves can be problematic. I mean, in, in some sense, the early promise of the internet is that it was freeing us from that. I mean, my favorite example would be academic publishers. What's the point in an academic publisher when we can just share information freely on the internet? And that's definitely how it felt in, in 2001 when my community first started freely publishing. And, and I do publish an entirely free volume, you know, free in terms of cost at all points. Um, yet we've seen that academic publishers have profited enormously, including, um, you know, some of the engineering institutes. Um, yeah. I know they're not for profit, but in terms of like charging open access publishing fees for this, because it's a mark of prestige. And in, for many people, that's, that's their route to promotion. That's because they're exploiting the brand name, which is a proxy for quality, which unfortunately on itself is undermined once you've, you're profiteering on, on that brand. So I, I, I foresee a quite significant return to attempts to curate information in that way. And perhaps whether it's traditional brands, it's going to be to some extent, or new and emerging brands where the quality of information available. I mean, I think Wikipedia is already a brand we probably all respect in that regard, right? And yeah. that's emergent in a very interesting curated community way. I mean, it's one of the most fantastic successes of, of the internet. One of the, the nicest things that happened, I think, you know, I'm sure it has some problems. So I'm really curious about that because, because of this, exactly this problem, that bad actors are going to be using these technologies. And that's probably the most innocent version of this because <laughs> in terms of, you know, you can also envisage what we would call data poisoning, which is purposefully poisoning that river. If the river is the source of data, poisoning it to, to kill or manipulate these models or to undermine them in, in, in certain ways. We already know in terms of cyber attacks, you know, these capabilities, if you look at the activities of the Internet Research Agency on the run into the 2016 elections, relatively few people, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's millions of Americans who sort of uh, ended up seeing information that had been posted specifically with the purpose of misleading. It's a separate question about to what extent that affects the election, but we know we know that happened. F Facebook yeah. have given evidence to that regard, and this problem, of course, becomes much, much, much worse um, when you have the capability to generate highly plausible information so quickly. I mean, there they were using people to sort of write these things, but you know, we can already see that these machines a lot better at, at generating that sort of plausible information than humans would be. And, you know, it's just a matter of how many computers do you want to switch on doing it? So, mm. so these are all really problematic, but, but let's not persuade ourselves that they haven't been going on to some extent. The notion of search engine optimization is what's given us a less trustworthy internet. It's something that Google used to fight, it used to be a sort of thing. Search engine used to be a dirty term because they were nefarious actors, but now it's sort of almost accepted. It seems to me implicit acceptance. There's a synergy between the search engine optimization and Google and getting paid for adverts and, and all these other effects. It's an emergent yeah. ecosystem that is actually not of the same information quality that certainly I feel of, of it was 10 or 15 years ago. You make a good point there that it, there's almost become a, a balance in the understanding of, yeah, we we know you're not doing it quite right, but we'll we'll give you a pass on this. Um, yeah. And, and, and yeah. so for a lot of key questions I have about source code, I've had various mechanisms to try and cope with it, one of which I always reject cookies all the time um, because that actually gives me information about the quality of the underlying information. Because the harder the website makes it to reject the cookies, the lower quality the underlying information. Because the more aligned they are with a website that is just trying to sort of push a load of adverts in front of you. So they, yeah. you know, and, and so it's something that I've detected. Other things I do, I, I used to sort of assume like since 1998, 
I would always assume, well, if it's not on Google, probably not on the internet. But then I increasingly discovered that wasn't true. So I've switched search engines, not because these other search engines are better, but because I'm trying to undermine my bias that assumes that if it's not on Google, it's not on the internet. So I try a different search engine first, then it doesn't work, then I go to Google. And, and when it's not on Google either, I no longer have that sort of implicit oh, it's probably not on the internet because, you know, the reason I discovered this is because I couldn't find my own papers that I know wrong. <laughs> right. The internet. Yeah. It, you know, so so it's not that these effects aren't happening, but there's, there's perhaps there's a sort of you know, boiling the frog way in which I think they've been happening. And this may be, you know, it's an acceleration to the extent we're going to have to deal with them. So my positive side was, well, we're going to have to deal with it now. But yeah. the disruption uh, is is going to be large. Um, yeah. no, that's in- really interesting. You, you talked just previously about regulation and re- regulatory involvement and development of, of standards and things. There's been a great deal of effort uh, being put into AI and machine learning research and implementation by the UK government. I- I'm mm. sure many governments are doing the same around the world. And none more so in in the health and social care sector. And recently, the the um, secretary for health, Steve Barclay, uh, made a comment, and I quote: "Artificial intelligence has the potential to speed up diagnosis and treatments, and free up time for our doctors and nurses, so that they can focus on caring for patients." With such enormous data sets in public health, do you think that AI particularly could have a significant impact in helping societies globally in terms of of health and social care? Yes, absolutely. But see, this has been true for 20 years. And so you have to ask the question, why it doesn't happen? It's becoming true. I mean, when, you know, the Minister of Health wasn't saying it 20 years ago. But let's sort of take some of the problems that arise in those circumstances. We've already talked about plumbing and the need for a solid data ecosystem. Now, it is true nowadays that I think the accounting laws around data infrastructures are allowing people to account for them as capital investment, I believe, in some way in talking to people about this. But you're not going to free up the doctors and nurses' time if you're not going to invest in the maintenance of that data infrastructure. Because if we end up with a situation where the the doctors and nurses are doing the sort of repairs on the windows and the window catches and uh, because the roof is leaking, then they're not caring for patients. And one of the ongoing challenges we've seen with all forms of automation so far is that while it has that promise, because it doesn't adapt to the job of the person it's involved in, it actually undermines the thing that particularly we want with a nurse, which is patient engagement, Mm. um, because it takes them away to sort of having to fill in paperwork in particular formats such that the machine can process it. And unless we start thinking very, very carefully about how that's being done and invest appropriately in the right skill sets for that, we've got a major problem. This is also what happens to nurses, right? Because they're the difficult to access people, right? And it's difficult to understand what would be helpful for them. And they find it difficult to express it because they don't even know the possibilities of these things. And yet we don't invest in the sort of people that could help because that's an operational cost. So to maintain and operate such systems and do them in such a way where you could target them towards the nurses, you're having to employ software engineers or data scientists at the front line. And your cost basis is, is it another nurse or is it another doctor or is it a software engineer? And you know what headline that's going to lead to downstream. And this is highly problematic because basically where we do, and, and we know from the pandemic, 
I mean, I think we all remember the the testing system that was reliant on a, an Excel spreadsheet that ran out of rows. And, you know, I think half the pub was horrified and the other half was like, oh, yeah, see that one coming because we're not investing in the data pipeline. We've got a sort of, a, you know, le- I walk past, you know, it, it's like a, a Victorian sewer system. It's leaking and breaking in, in, in all sorts of ways because we're not putting the necessary investment in. And we won't put that investment in because there's always something that sounds more urgent. But what you end up with is doctors and nurses doing that job. And that's the situation we're faced with. I mean, of course, it's most vivid for us in that where it's a life and death situation and you're dealing with a relative who has cancer or yeah. something like that and the the nurse can't access their notes you know it feels horrific but the fault is 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 in a failure to actually think well about the underlying system or to incentivize hospitals because you know we all know what decision the chief executive of that hospital is going to have to make because if they're not making that decision to hire more nurses they're going to get criticized for it so there's some interesting interventions, and I think that you know that's one I'm very interested in—a regulatory intervention that sort of says, well, how do we account for maintenance of these systems in a way that's a bit more similar to how we account for maintenance of capital infrastructure? And I think even with that analogy, we have to be a bit careful because yeah. there's probably problems with that analogy. But you you sort of get the point that that we all want to do these exciting things and deploy neural networks. And what we're going to end up doing is, is, is pulling in large tech companies to do that, who, by the way, do not have the solutions mm. by any, I mean, some of them have better solutions than others, but we'll promise the solutions, spend a lot of money, and we won't have that expertise integrated within you know, our services, whether that's the NHS or whether that's local councils trying to sort out housing to make them more energy efficient um, or to try and get a better understanding of, you know, where the, the 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 deprivation needs are in in the areas they're responsible for or whatever they're doing because we have the same problem there and you know whether it's in sort of our cities our transport our climate our health ecosystem this is going to come up again and again and yeah. of course we can say there's this magical world of ai that's going to fix it but until we're willing to do the Baseljet investment and not just the Baseljet investment, forget about the Victorian sewer for 120 years and then have a lot of sort of stories about fatbergs, the Baseljet investment that, that maintains that system. I mean, the amazing thing about that system, I think, you know, it, it has survived. They only just completed that tunnel. Isn't it? It's just extraordinary, the new tunnel underneath the Thames. I mean, like underneath, I mean, I just find it mind-blowing. Yeah, and engineering of that scale, who can not fall in love with it? We've only just sort of come in and said, "Oh, well, let's go beyond the embankment and look at the size of London now." So we have to be a bit wiser about that and have the equivalent of the investment in the maintenance of of, of those systems. Yeah, you make a very good point, and that brings me to a, a really interesting question in terms of how will we see AI change the way we educate? and teach future generations. And and you made a, a really interesting point that how are we going to use it to, to educate our engineers to be able to predict some of these things that we're going to need to do uh, in the real world at some point? Yeah, I, I don't know. And I think it's really intriguing because even working with it, so, so one of the things I end up 
doing an embarrassing amount is building websites because I, you know, for example, for the journal I run, I, I maintain the website and I'm not a, a great with cascading style sheets and I have no idea what's working with which and whatever. And But I do have enough knowledge to ask ChatGPT and understand what it's doing and ask it about what it said. So, so the most recent website I built and managed to create things I wouldn't have created on my own by using the knowledge in ChatGPT. You know, I'm effectively using it as a much fancier and more easy to work with search yeah. engine but that chat interface is probably not the ideal way of doing that in terms of like if if i think back if, if we sort of said in 1992 you're going to have the internet how are you going to interface with it you probably wouldn't say well a glorified version of a library catalog search yeah. you know you know and, and and the weird thing now when we sort of think about a lot of the early reactions with oh it's going to sort of totally revolutionize search engines well it probably will but i, I don't think sort of just putting it in place of a search engine you know the search engine is still going to have a role a bit like cinema maintained its role stop doing new reels but maintains its role after television and television you know is reacting to the internet in some way and then and then the question of education comes up and and the, the first thing that i think the only thing that you can say well all the obvious things people will say are likely to be wrong and the first things off so this is the one thing i sort of learned in this business the first and most obvious thing that comes to your mind that's probably not the answer uh, because when we look in the history we see that that didn't work out so well. So the notion that you stop, you know, that we don't have to worry about maths because people have calculators, there'll be computers to do it, you know, totally wrong and, and wrong in exactly the wrong direction because it's like, no, now we have computers doing this stuff. More maths is becoming within reach of individuals who are doing whatever jobs, whether it's engineering or whatever else. Their need to understand that maths is even greater. And I think something similar is is going to happen in in education. So, so my best guess on it is we do need to embrace these technologies. I mean, there's, 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 there's really, there's the here and now problems of what do we say about kids doing their homework with chat GPT, you know, and this sort of thing. I mean, that has some pretty severe consequences when you think about it, all sorts of levels. Like, I think it's been a bit disturbing the extent to which some entities are rushing to sort of give answers because you can immediately see inequalities arising from that. So who has access to this tool and who doesn't, you know, and we already, and, and that's the one thing we keep seeing every time there's an innovation, it exacerbates inequalities. Yeah. So be very, very careful about any step that, that is going to build on that. But having said that correctly designed tutors in this form could, could deal with some of the challenges that, that children from, you know, backgrounds where, academia or education, high-level education isn't tradition, giving them opportunities they wouldn't have before. Yeah. Because a conversation with ChatGPT on a particular subject could take them in directions that perhaps their parents, for whatever reason, and often it's circumstantial or tradition, can't take. So, you know, clearly any sort of blanket decision on this is, 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 is problematic. And again, you know, it comes... I think it relates to some of the, the same thing we said about sort of engineering and when engineers are trying to integrate in this. The same rule applies here. Like the idea that it's either some magic solution or something to deny at all costs is both are going to be wrong. There's some nuanced opinion. We just don't unfortunately have access to it. So what we need to do is is understand how to educate and share experience as rapidly as possible, share things that have worked. That's certainly what we're doing in our AI for Science program in Cambridge. You know, we're sort of like, oh, wow, let's let's listen to how people are using the tool and, and learn from experience about what's helping people yeah. and then try and share those lessons. So I think that the education, I mean, it's 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 a dramatic, I mean, it's dramatic. In, so I, I convene the AI fellows for a number of meetings. These are the UK AI fellows who are funded by UKRI, you know, who are at the cutting edge of this area. And 
I, I'm so keen to make sure that we build a sort of robust community within the UK, which is something we've lacked in machine learning for a number of years. All our leading people have just focused on the international community and the, the national community was very poor. Right. And this has been a real opportunity to sort of, to get that community going. And one of the things we did was a hackathon because it, to some extent, it's not the crusties like me that, that are the future. It's their students and their postdocs, yeah. right? But to some extent, to the whole extent, right? It's so, so trying to, get the sense of community empowerment amongst that group. And so we convened them here in Cambridge or, or a good 30 of them on a hackathon where we focused on some interesting challenges. We had an energy challenge, you know, AI and power grids. We had um, AI in climate modeling. So how, how do we use less compute and get the same high quality results? And we had a sort of AI in cancer example. How do we understand causal mechanisms underlying cancer? All, all sort of examples that we curated mm. that, you know, they're not going to solve them in a day. The main focus was actually just to introduce them to each other and make sure that across different universities and different regions, we had people knowing that they could reach out to each other. But I did get the privilege of sort of getting to introduce the session. And it hadn't been something that I'd thought before I started speaking. But if I look across my career and the similar career stage, which for me is now 26, 27 years ago, I, I would never have believed the change I was going to perceive. Mm. And you could, I've, I've been able to be on the crest of, of that wave and, and benefited from that. And I have all this privilege before that. But literally, as I was talking to them, the hairs, and they do again now, as I remember it, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up because the changes they're going to experience, I think are going to be an order of magnitude greater. Yeah. And you know what more can you do than try and encourage a community of clever, interested people to please stay in this area and worry about these things and, and help out? Because that's something that will scale, because I believe they will do far more than I could possibly do in, in order to steer these technologies in the right way, because they're going to assimilate them much faster. You know, mm. as you get older, you're more fixed in your ways. You, you see the possibilities less. And, and one problem in academia is that that's the people we fund, the people who don't see the possibilities. Yeah. Well, you, you can always say that those young people that you are encouraging to, to move on in the profession and to carry this work on are standing on the shoulders of giants, Neil. So, uh, you know, it's it's nice to think that that what you've done and what where you've taken your interests and and your work to will be something that they carry on and and develop into things that we're just not even capable of thinking of right now. Yeah, I mean, you hope that's true, and in some sense, I always it's, it's, you have to be careful. Uh, it's a Newton statement, and it's, <laughs> Newton said it to make fun of Hooke, who was. Uh, a man who was short of stature and who had been significant in steering Newton towards gravity and Newton was trying to rewrite history in that sense is my understanding of the story. So I always, as I totally agree, but I always worry about that, that disease in academia of believing that you're the one that should take credit for anything or do anything because that's the narrative will always be written in the way in that way and, and whoever's chosen to be the person, the equivalent of Newton or whatever. But what we all know if you're active in the thing is that those people we're really proud of them but they were the product of a community yeah. they're often the most brilliant person in that community and i, I yeah so i yeah so in in that sense i always think of um the the tree of life sculptures that that you can see in tanzania these most beautiful sculptures carved out of wooden trunks of communities standing on each other and, and i can't remember the word in um swahili they use for it but they 
they sort of embed it in their Tanzanian culture, which was kind of a, uh, an interesting, uh, you know, quite socialist oriented. I'm, I'm, forget the political stuff. <laughs> I, I don't care whether it's socialist. I like the statues. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and they, they know they are standing on the shoulders, but they're not standing on the shoulders of giants. They're standing on the shoulders of many other people who are embraced arm in arm, supporting each other. And in that way, you know, a community is emerging. Yeah. yeah. Well, in, in terms of the community of machine learning and so on, the, that goes all the way back to, to those people who were Bletchley, as you talked about earlier, and, and that community that uh, really transformed th this particular subject matter, I suppose. I know that many of our listeners are very interested to know how they might apply AI in the future. W what kind of applications are we going to see AI and machine learning being used for in the next sort of 10 to 15 years? And and what are your personal predictions as as to where it might be, you know, in the next 20 to 30 years? Yeah, I think that there's certain timeframes that are very difficult to predict. Um, just because I think the whole basis of technology will have changed, as it has changed over the last 20 years. Um, I, some of the patterns I see is, is that these foundation models, large language models, multimodal models in terms of content generation models have really sort of changed the accessibility of these tools. And that's going to have some of the negative effects we've talked about. And one of those negative effects that is not necessarily going to be from nefarious actors, but just is that people are going to be able to create quite plausible AIs quite quickly that don't didn't require much expert knowledge in the domain to create. Yeah. Like in the past, because the data curation. If, if you want to cure cancer, you have to collect the data. You have to do all these sort of things. You can have to be integrated with people who've thought a lot about this. And of course, that slows things up and that's problematic. But once you've increased the accessibility, if you're going to try and cure cancer by just asking chat GPT without knowing what you're doing, <laughs> yeah. you're going to create something quite plausible, but potentially quite problematic. And and that that domain's going to be quite troublesome. And and I so I have this fear. Here's one of my fears that, that made me think about it is the one thing I quite liked about NFTs is they sort of highlighted the extent to which so many of these investment schemes are just purely pyramid schemes because there was no underlying value to the thing the NFT was on. So when people were engaging in these sort of uh, investments, it's clear, oh, no, this is 100% pyramid. It's quite clear, you know. And, and, and so that sort of allowed one to sort of say, oh, when we also see investments in particular tech organizations, there's some component to which it's pyramid, I think, you know, and there's some value there. And, but but the, the pyramid scheme plays out over a very, very long period of time. So we don't quite notice it. Yeah. And the reason it could happen with NFTs is somehow the accessibility of the technology. So I'm a little bit disturbed by this sort of notion is that you end up with sort of world of, I mean, and, and it's not that like there's no uses of blockchain, but one of the things that happened is the probability that someone who said that they were using blockchain to create some technological solution was not grounded in, in the reality of a domain became very, very high at some point. So at some point, it became too difficult to listen to the someone would say blockchain. And you just sort of say, well, I could spend a lot of time trying to work out if this one's sensible, or I could just ignore it. Yeah. Quite worried that's going to happen in AI. Okay. You know, that the, the accessibility will create a lot of poor quality AI systems in the same way that you sort of had pure quality blockchain solutions that, that have some characteristics of an interesting thing. And it's going to be very difficult, you know, given people, 
people say, well, why don't you sort of go and read it or investigate? Well, because we don't have infinite time. You know, sometimes we have to take things as given and, and then that's going to be a bit of a problem. And, and also as an expert, you're asked, well, why don't you speak up and sort of say that this is a problem? Well, because that also takes time. And also to do that well, I then have to investigate the solution and then go through why it's a problem. And for that reason, largely, I, I, I've stopped doing sort of short media comments. I get asked a lot. And, and of course, what you get is the media comment from the people who don't have such concern about. And so you, you get a degradation in the debate. Yeah. It's, it's sort of no one's fault. It's just an emergent property. Sorry, you asked me about all the sort of positive sort of AI things. And, 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 and actually, I, I'm sort of worried about this wave, but I'm sort of I, I think a wave like that will come. And I think that, that we're going to have to quite rapidly work out how to have a... I mean, and there are ongoing high-quality debates. They're just often not reported on because they're less newsworthy, typically. Yeah. So that community that we're building of, peop of people who are trusted, and this is problematic as well, right? Because what you end up with is you build a closed community of people who you know think sensibly about this stuff. But that's also a way of excluding voices. You know, yeah. That's been done in the yeah. past. So how do you build this sort of trusted community of people who care about the right things but bring the right level of expertise? Sorry, it's not really answering the question. But I think that's partially because it's a difficult question it is. to answer. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, and and I and I well I hope for this future where we're not talking about it in some sense that that it's just integrated. We understand capabilities and limitations and we can we can wield it in in the way that we would use a wield a computer to have a video conference or 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 to catch up on our favorite television series without thinking twice about it um, yeah yes I, I understand what you're saying in, in terms of that there, there has to come a point where at the moment for example we're still discussing the issues and the benefits of electric vehicles but at some point that conversation will disappear because they will just be vehicles yeah and and i guess what you're saying is the same for artificial intelligence or machine learning or algorithms that that do all of this kind of processing it will just become a, an innate part of what we do in our everyday work yeah we don't comment life. on the fact that i don't call a stockbroker if i want to buy shares now yeah <laughs> i mean why would why would there be a stockbroker you know but but there was and yeah and it has that has had effects i mean but, and there's going to be but i i think that the interesting thing is the extent to which it's happening and i think a driverless cars example is a very good one because people have been promising that for a while and there are particular problems with which people were saying you know i was saying them um you know about why this wasn't going to be a technology that was going to emerge quickly i mean you can, trains you know, <laughs> trains are much easier to make driverless, right? Yet we haven't managed trains. Yeah. And then the other fun thing is, well, horses were actually kind of self-driving entities in some sense. But but more seriously, you know, there are problems in terms of like, you know, the capabilities that you'd have to give such systems, which which fit with this narrative of saying before, you have to, like all previous generations of automation in order to assimilate driverless cars in the current, with the current technology, you, you would have to, impose more controls on who has access to roads just as we impose controls on motorways and railway lines you know in, a, in order to allow that form of automation or we put machines in factories right because we haven't built a technology that is capable of interacting with humans you know just the basic point that you've got two options either your cars will run people over or they won't and if they won't people will walk out in front of them unless you introduce new laws that says you can't walk out in front of driverless cars and stop them from operating yeah. but these are sort of fundamental things that rely on 
a failing human to be behind the wheel that means that we don't do it today, right? Yeah. So these aren't even things you can sort of design your way out of in the, unless you sort of change the way that we're fundamentally using our street infrastructure. And that is, you know, that's a debate that, that maybe we want to have. But but my answer would be, well, well, let's get bicycles on them. But that's not the intervention you need from a regulatory perspective. And what we see is that the real advance in regulation around vehicles is with the highway code. Because what the, what the highway code does is it, it, it creates a document that becomes a negotiation between different road users. And it's stipulating things that are legal and illegal, but it's also stipulating best practice. And that's the type of thing that I think allows for co-evolution of regulation technology. And, and actually, that's the sort of thing that, so I'm, I'm interim chair of the CDEI, and, 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 and I can see, you know, aspects of that, you know, they, they do, you know, it's an advisory group, I, I can't claim responsibility for some of the great work they're doing with, with their recent algorithmic transparency recording standard, just starting to push out standards that people can use and thinking about those standards in terms of the different users and how they're going to be used, that the, the form a point of debate that try and capture our best understanding of the sort of issues that will arise with algorithmic uh, use and, and try and inform best practice in the public services. And then, you know, if they're successful, I'm sure they'll be evolved because I'm sure that we won't have everything squared away. Then I'm, you know, I, I suspect we'll start seeing them being more formally imposed. And, you know, that that's kind of work we, we are doing in the UK. And, and you know, it's exciting. We, we're very capable in terms of the quality of our civil service and the capability of our expertise can come together and, you know, in many regards, be world leading in this aspect. So I think the conclusion then is that we are still a long way from the sort of metropolis kind of robotic AI image that the film industry kind of creates. But actually, a lot of this will come down to humans in terms of accepting, understanding and applying AI in the right way. And I suppose ultimately that comes down to us as engineers to ensure that that two-way conversation is uh, is had and that we perhaps are the gatekeepers to ensure this technology is used in the right way in the future. Yeah, I, I prefer curators rather than gatekeepers because gatekeepers always feel like that they you know they have some enhanced knowledge whereas the curators looking at diversity and, and bringing bringing people in and maybe even curators is too um paternalistic but i think that the main thrust of your point is correct and i think it goes back to the start of our conversation you know, when we look at the term artificial intelligence and what does it mean it contains this very emotive word intelligence and you look back at the history of human beings and trying to understand their place in the cosmos and even realizing the extent of the cosmos. You, you have an initial view that we're the center of this thing and that it can only all be about us, that has to evolve to, oh no, it's the sun, but it's still our solar system that's there, to this, oh no, we're just one amongst many things. And these are quite difficult aspects to psychologically grasp. Yeah. And what you're looking at with the term intelligence is you know, something that hasn't been threatened in that way sort of a hundred years ago. But all other aspects were, you know, our ability to do labor, our ability to, to do motion. These were threatened in the Industrial Revolution. Samuel Butler writes about these things. And what we're seeing now is, is this an assault on perhaps what many of us have felt is the last frontier. But I think we're quite lucky in that, although I'm not religious myself, when you look at a lot of our conversations around artificial intelligence, they closely mirror our historic conversations around religion. So you look at a lot of the, the sort of 
fears that are propagated about AI, they look very similar to sort of the Olympian Greek gods, you know, in terms of these angry entities that will be all powerful or ability to use that power myself to become immortal or, mm. you know, transhumanism has great echoes of, of, of this sort of thing and um, triumphalism and capabilities and, you know, power. And, and it, at one point I sort of noticed that and started thinking, oh, but, but that isn't the nature of religion today. And most religions today, you know, I mean, they have, if you try and look at what they do that's very clever is they use the notion of an all-powerful God and outside intelligence to introspect because they start questioning, well, who am I in the face of this? And I sort of find that quite inspirational because what it starts making you realize is, of course, these machines will have great capabilities that go beyond us, but they also allow us to introspect and care much more about us. And I, I don't want to be transhuman. I, I want to understand what it is to be human and celebrate what it is. I don't, transhumanism to me is, is like taking the butterfly and, and, and putting rockets on it so it efficiently collects all the nectar. You, you know, you're in some sense removing all the beauty. Now, the counter argument is, well, what if something else is stealing the nectar? But the machine isn't computing, keep competing for our nectar because our nectar is social interaction. Yeah. It's care, it's love, it's joy, it's the things that are part of our life, that are persistent part of our culture, that have evolved over billions of years and more recently millions of years or as, as sort of modern humans, hundreds of thousands of years, that you can never ever take away with us and and it suddenly gives you a sort of sense of the totality of that and and what it means and, and that we're all lucky enough to be part of that journey so i think from that perspective ai gives us my most positive point of view is ai gives us a place to stand and look back at ourselves and and understand better ourselves and as soon as we get through this this further being taken down another peg or two in terms of being all powerful in the universe or the center of someone's creation to oh hang on which is part of this thing and we're, but we're an extraordinary part of that thing that is, I mean, what's the quote? Endless forms most beautiful, I think, is, is, is from Darwin. We're one of those forms that, that is particularly beautiful to us. And, and, and that in itself is enough. And, and rather than seeing AI as a threat to that, we, we can see AI as a lens through which we can see ourselves. Neil, I think that is possibly the most profound thing that I've ever heard on, on our podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. It has been a delight to not only hear about the subject itself, but your passion for it as well. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you, Helen. It's really great. And it's a sort of honour as a sort of mechanical engineer myself to be invited. So thank you so much for thinking of me as a guest. That's all for this month. In next month's episode, we will be looking at the value of leadership and management skills and why these kind of competencies are becoming increasingly important to young engineers starting out in their careers. I spoke with engineers, trainers and guest speakers at the recent three-day Essential Management Skills Conference held in Leicester about why strong leadership is so vital in today's engineering industry. You've been listening to Impulse to Innovation, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us, podcast at imeke.org. 
All the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes. 